Good Issue for All Women. Hello, Hannah here, welcoming you to this week's Sunday Chops, which is an absolute belter, if I do say so myself, and something that I've been promising you for ages. Back in the summer, I read an article by New York Times journalist Elizabeth Williamson about her conversations with an Oklahoma-based grandmother who was one of the most vocal Sandy Hook conspiracy theorists. I immediately bought Elizabeth's book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, and read it in a day. And then I immediately sent Elizabeth a request for an interview. And since then, we've been attempting to get a date at work for both of us. And so I am delighted to say that day has finally come. And the timing is excellent for reasons that will become clear in the interview. Now, Elizabeth is a very busy woman for reasons that will also become clear in the interview. So I didn't ask her to go into the background of the tragedy. I'm going to do that instead for you here. On December the 14th, 2012, a 20-year-old walked into Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, and shot and killed 26 people. 20 of them were children aged between six and seven years old, and the other six were adult staff members. He had, that same morning, also killed his mother, and later, when police arrived at the school, he killed himself. It remains, and I hope it continues to remain, the deadliest mass shooting in an elementary school in US history, and the fourth deadliest mass shooting overall. President Obama, who cried when giving a statement directly after the shooting, later called it the saddest and angriest day of his presidency. But, as Elizabeth will explain, the incident immediately became the subject of world internet conspiracies and found a frontman in the form of Alex Jones, whose wild rants on Infowars, the channel he owns and operates, are punctuated only by endorsements for diet supplements. But comeuppance, as we discuss, has arrived for Jones. And as Elizabeth says in this piece, one of the court cases is happening as we speak. So if you're interested, you should definitely follow Elizabeth on Twitter for updates on the trial. Thanks, as ever, for listening. Your book starts by taking us through what police discovered when they entered Sandy Hook Elementary School. It's not graphic, but it is absolutely devastating. I've been a reporter for a long time. I'm quite tough, and yet even I had to put it down and then come back to it. And in fact, I noticed that you actually read it on the audio book. You read that chapter. Can you talk me through what considerations you had about how to write that and indeed why it was you that actually reads it in the audio book? As relates to the audio book, backing into the question, Lenny Posner, who uh, is a central character in the book, he's the father of Noah Posner, the youngest Sandy Hook victim. And he was the person who identified Sandy Hook, not as a one-off conspiracy theory, but really as a foundational story of how misinformation and false narratives have gained traction in our society. Lenny, as it happens, used to listen to Alex Jones in his milder earlier days Mm. on the radio, traveling between clients because he found some of these, you know, more innocuous conspiracy theories like the moon landing and things like that Mm. to be, you know, the Da Vinci Code type thing to be a kind of intellectual exercise. So as it happens, Lenny is really an audiobook fan. And he had said, if you don't read the book, 
it's not going to be the same for me. <laughs> it's like it won't. I won't experience the book very well if if it's not in your voice, because we've spent so many years and so many hours talking.、Mm. And I thought that that would be great. I thought it would be a really interesting experience to do it. But I'm not a professional. But I did want to. Read the parts that were、um, most personal to me, which were the author's note, the the epilogue, and、um, as you say, the the prologue, in which we discuss the crime itself and establish the baseline truth of that. So,、um, to the other part of your question, I did struggle with how to portray that. You know, when I came on those details, I hadn't known, you know, how it was that the children were found and what condition they were in. Myself, because that was something that was not widely discussed for obvious reasons. It was traumatic to people, but I felt it was necessary to, as I said, establish the baseline truth of what occurred, because it had been so distorted by the conspiracy theorists.、Mm. And I wanted to do that through official reports. And so, in the course of my reporting, I met Bill Cario, who is now retired, but was the sergeant in the Connecticut State Police, and he was among the first people into the school. And he was the one who discovered the bodies of the children. I met Bill years ago now in a diner in Newtown, and I could tell immediately that this was something that. He will never fully recover from just the, what he saw that day and how he tried to help. And I just felt like telling this through him would be a way of conveying both the absolute, you know, unassailable facts、mm. of the case, but also the way he saw it and the compassion and and really the heroism that he brought to the situation. It beggars belief. It's actually been a couple of months since I read this book now. And just when、mm-hmm. I was getting ready to prep this interview and sit down and get on Zoom, I live right next door to a primary school, which is what you would call an elementary school. And、yes. I can hear all of the kids outside playing. And then it started raining, so then I heard, you know, like the, the shrieking and the chaos and the, you know, all of the kids running around. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if somebody walked into that? I mean, it's harder for us、yes. to imagine. Obviously, because over here it happened once in this country, and we changed the law. Actually, that gets me to guns because I mean, guns are always shocking for us. Yeah, you know, we're totally、yeah. baffled by it. But then I look at conversations after school shootings, or in fact, any kind of mass shooting that happens in America, and you know, and there's a conversation about guns, and there's a conversation about mental health, and it never seems to to get anywhere. How how do you think America can ever have a productive? Conversation about guns. It's an excellent question that I am not really equipped to answer. When I wrote the book, I wanted to stay away from the gun policy、yeah. and gun legislation debate, and I had a couple of good reasons for that. First of all, that to me is a separate issue than what I was discussing in the book, which was really the aftermath of、yeah. the shooting and how the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories predicted the world of. Disinformation that we are living in today. So to trace that trajectory from Sandy Hook to most mass shootings, to PizzaGate, to Charlottesville, to coronavirus myths, and the 2020 election conspiracy、mm. lie, and finally the attack on the Capitol. You know, it was more than enough of a heavy lift to do that trajectory yeah,、um, without straying into the, as you say, you know, the intractable Gordian knot of the gun policy debate. But also. 
the families themselves hold a range of opinions on gun control in America. And they, you know, are 26 different families with um, with many views on that. I also resisted delving into the, that, except as it related to the conspiracy theorists' attacks on them. Yeah. You know, if they were active in that sphere, I certainly described that and what happened in the aftermath. But I didn't go into it because the central theory here, uh, the false one, is that this was all done in service or plotted in service of gun control. And so I did not want to give fuel to that fire and ammunition to the conspiracy theorists who say that the entire shooting was a pretext. I know I say in the author's note, I know that won't work, but nonetheless, I did not go there. Now, you do put an excellent case forward in this book for how Sandy Hook is a blueprint for, you know, what, what's happened post every tragedy since almost. And like you say, the, the thread that goes along. Before we get to that, there was a couple of other things that once I'd read this, I couldn't stop saying connections to other things either. And a couple of the things that I noticed were the huge amount of money that everybody donated to sort of charities around Sandy Hook without any clear idea of where any of that money was going, which I have seen replicated again and again and again. We've had a couple of cases here well, one in particular in which um, there was an old man who was raising money for the NHS and then he died and his children started a charity. And now some questions are actually being asked about where that money is actually going that they have mm. set up. And yet people with the best intentions in the world gave them money and yes. without asking questions. And the other thing was how closely corporations try to link themselves to this, which is, again, something I see quite commonly you know, attach themselves to what they would, I think, associate, you know, the right side of histories without necessarily getting on board with the message, but using it as a promotional tool. So there were a couple of things happening there. I mean, this crime occurred so close to the winter holidays that it was, you know, it was devastating enough to any American who heard about it or read about it. But the fact that it occurred, you know, in the run up to a time that is really geared toward children and kind of a magical time and season really uh, stirred people in, in ways that, you know, were were extraordinary. And there was just this spontaneous spasm of generosity that, you know, people wanted to send whatever they could. It was often money, but it wasn't entirely that it was, you know, Older people sending dolls that, you know, they had had as children, you know, antique toys that they had coveted as children and treasured. Children sending their own treasured toys. People offering to make things, to paint, to, to sketch. One of the um, the favorite possessions of uh, Lenny Posner and Veronique De La Rosa, Noah Posner's parents, is, is a sketch of him that someone made just from one of the photographs um, that appeared in the media. So... That was all really welcomed by the families, but at the same time, the sheer volume of it Mm. became overwhelming. And the money itself proved extraordinarily divisive because the United Way of Western Connecticut set up within hours a fund in the aftermath of the tragedy. And they collected money, which, you know, it's since been established, should have gone to the victims' families. But in fact, the United Way 
doesn't even have the ability to distribute money to individuals. They were collecting for their own programs, which, to be sure, benefit the community, but they did not benefit the victims' families directly. And they were, you know, raising money basically for their own operational Mm. budget, you know, for their own programs. This really incensed the families. They said, you've used our children's names and the shooting that killed them to raise money for yourselves. And it's not right. And that led to a years long controversy, at the end of which the United Way appointed a board of community leaders to try and make some decisions of whether the money, you know, how the money should be distributed. They set up a separate foundation so that money could go to the victims' families. But in the end, families received a proportion of that money, but not the entire amount. The United Way did keep a chunk of that money, and that has graded on these families to this day. And it also set a future standard in which funds are set up that will directly benefit the families so that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. We see this after um, mass tragedies when the American Red Cross comes in and raises money. Not all of that money goes to directly to the victims and their families. Mm -hmm. And this has become a a real sticking point in society in America. And it's very hard on the whole community when this happens. We've got a couple of towns that are notorious for incidents. If I say them, you'll probably know what they are. You know, Soham, Lockerbie, places where things have happened. And that town will be forever associated with that thing. And having spoken to people who lived in, well, in both of those towns, for example, it's a very, even if you're not involved, it's very difficult for you because constantly when you say, I come from Soham, I come from Lockerbie, that's the question that you get. So it is something that does affect the whole community, but also obviously, particularly affects the, the parents in this situation. So from what I've gathered, it could be a strain on the entire community and on relations within that community. Completely. You know, the families describe when they travel abroad and, and residents of Newtown, you know, they they don't say they're from there. Mm. They'll say they're from Fairfield nearby, you know, town or the, you know, the name of the county or something like that, because they just don't want to engage in that conversation and hear the, you know, once again, I'm so sorry. Oh, how horrible. Here's where I was when it happened, that kind of thing. They want to kind of get past that. Some of them, many of them, but also, yes, that the distribution of, of goods and money became very divisive, not only between the families and the charities involved, but also among residents of the town Mm. because it was just so much stuff that was given to the entire town and as one of the parents Robbie Parker whose daughter Emily died at Sandy Hook put it in the book you know he wanted to say to people do you realize why you have these things why you got this free trip to Disney World why you got these Nike sneakers Mm. you know he recalls friends of theirs who lost their son at Sandy Hook you know watching people scrambling to get sneakers special commemorative sandy hook that Nike really struck sneaker. me when i read it it really that yeah. has really stuck with me that image and i think it's important to note there that those sneakers came after a request from a child in newtown who was struggling to do something for his classmates and nike did not overtly publicize the giving of that gift but nonetheless you can go on to poshmark or ebay today and you can look around and find some of those sneakers being sold on there. So 
that's a perversion of the original intent yeah. and of the thought. And that kind of thing happened a lot, you know, the sort of relentless commercialization of what is a horrific tragedy. Yeah. Now, in a pre-Sandy Hook time, this would be the point that I was saying, thanks for your time, Elizabeth. That's great. Um, <laughs> now we have this whole other chapter that's equally as dark and equally as inexplicable, and that is the conspiracy theories that started to form around Sandy Hook. For those of our listeners who don't actually know what the conspiracy theories were, can you give us a a rough idea of the sort of thing that began to be said and how soon after it happened that started? Sure. So within hours of the shooting, I'll start with Alex Jones because he was the biggest megaphone for Mm. these conspiracy theories. He likes to say that he was only echoing the theories and the questions (laughs) of others. But this isn't true. I listened to his show from the day of the shooting in December of 2012. And within hours, he was postulating that this was some kind of a what's called false flag operation, an event planned by the government as a pretext for draconian gun control, or as he would say, a gun grab confiscating Americans' firearms. This was taken up by many others and reflected in real time by many people out there who have a kind of conspiratorial mindset, who are deeply distrustful of government and traditional institutions, including science and medicine. And they were echoing this theory. Now, I will say that there was a group of people who normally wouldn't be conspiracy theorists, because this is much more a function of psychology than it is of politics, even though this was a political theory that emerged. But outside of that group, um, there was a group of, you know, moms, for example, who had children the same age as those who were killed at Sandy Hook. And they felt like they were ready to embrace any narrative that involved those children not having died in the horrible way they did. Mm. And that Lenny Posner described as almost a PTSD reaction to the tragedy itself. But mostly what happened was the people who embraced this this theory said that, you know, not only was this plotted by the government, but that the families of the victims were complicit in the plot, essentially that they planned their own children's deaths in service of a gun control agenda. This led to years of torment of these families, which began online when people appeared on Facebook pages and things like that, that were created to raise money for funeral costs that were um, meant to memorialize those who were lost. Then they went on to the family's individual social media pages and attacked them there as liars and frauds and so-called crisis actors, a term which was coined during Sandy Hook and has since been applied to many other people um, in the aftermath of tragedy. They attacked them on the street. They dug through their trash. They looked in their windows. They followed them. They confronted them and they threatened their lives. So this has gone on for years. It's a much less, thanks to Lenny Posner's efforts, it's, it's a much less uh, common occurrence now. But in those first years, it was an absolute secondary trauma to these families. Oh, absolutely. You just saying that now, it, it, I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense. None of it makes any logical sense. And I'm sure people listening to this will think, but how can on the one hand they be conspiring with the government and then on the other hand be actors? You know, none of it matches yes. up. None of it marries up. No. 
It's all stupid. It's interesting you say the thing about the mums you had contact with. Somebody called Great Mum, which is was her screen name, yeah. who was one of the worst offenders, I would say. Yes. And far as I am not a psychiatrist, every time I read it, I felt my brain just automatically diagnosing <laughs> her with things and just thinking, is this that she can't accept that this happens or she can't imagine it happening to someone she knows? Or is this because because she's in some way jealous of the attention that these other mothers are getting. Like, they're, I couldn't work it out. So well done for talking to her. I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about, about her and why you made that decision to actually engage. Yes, um, I am happy to talk about it. Her name is Kelly Watt. She lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mother of two and with two grandchildren. She as a person who has some trauma in her background, um, she has been a lifelong conspiracy theorist who in the 1990s became convinced uh, through some work that she had done volunteering for her children's school and being involved in educational issues that, you know, is very similar. I mean, it echoes through the years to the a current debate over what's being taught to children in school in America. She was convinced that liberals in the Department of Education were indoctrinating Oklahoma's public school children. And she engaged in this campaign that was just relentless, turning up on school board members' doorsteps, picketing, speaking at school board meetings, uh, trying to get the local newspaper involved, calling people in the middle of the night. It became a kind of obsessive thing. And her family was imploding around her. Her husband had a struggle with alcoholism. He lost the family business. They lost their homes. They lost their cars. And she still continued with this campaign. It was sort of indicative of what would happen later, except for one thing. And that's that because the local media would not give her the time of day, her theories gained no traction and she had mountains of files, you know, physical paper files that kind of moldered away in her attic because there was no oxygen given to the, her theories. Fast forward to Sandy Hook and we have social media where she can jump on, find these theories online, join the Sandy Hook hoax Facebook group, which had hundreds of members speaking every night into the wee hours of the morning. She could find a guy named Jim Fetzer, who was a former disgraced state academic um, who had put together a book called Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. She contributed a chapter to that. So she had a, um, a house cleaning business in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And through connecting herself to the Sandy Hook hoax and, you know, becoming one of its prime advocates. And it was it was she who was writing things to Lenny Posner, like dig up these oh, children, you know, and prove to the world you lost your son, you know, exhume the bodies of the victims. She also, because she was in the cleaning business, came up with a theory that unless someone could tell her who cleaned up the horrible aftermath of the crime had done the biohazard work and things like that, that it hadn't happened. And that became an enduring part of the theory. She really was an awful player in all of this. And, you know, I spoke with her for a long time to try and understand how she could, you know, do this to these families, directly approach them, continually lie about them, mention them by name, you know, call up. She made hundreds of phone calls to Newtown saying who cleaned up the blood at the school. You know, she was traumatizing people who were already traumatized. 
And she was doing it because she thought she was a truth seeker, but she Mm. was also gaining a new identity and a heightened profile. She was a person who I interviewed her daughter for hours, and she was telling me that she felt like her mother never felt like she had reached her full potential in life, that she hadn't, you know, continued in college, which she started but didn't finish. Her family kind of fell apart. So she she was self-actualizing through spreading this hoax, through being a member of a group that included academics and professors and people who, in her perception, were of higher station than she. Her daughter described being at the kitchen table one day. Her daughter lives in Europe, has very little to do with her, partly because of this mentality, because she's embraced a host of conspiracy theories, including Holocaust denial and you know, all kinds of things that her daughter finds unpalatable. But she remembers sitting in, at the kitchen table at the height of, of all of this and the phone ringing and her, her mother answering the phone saying, Sandy Hook Research Center, mm-hmm. you know. So this was just something that gave her a new kind of lease on life, believe it or not. It's beyond belief. See, I mentioned earlier, we, we are not in the UK immune to conspiracy theories. There are people here who are anti-vaxxers. There are people here who believe that Princess Diana was murdered by the state. There are people here who follow Mm -hmm. QAnon. But in terms of the percentage of the population, it is tiny. Now, in America, I would say it's bigger. Is that just because there are more of you or is it somehow representative (laughs) of some existential crisis that America is, is having? So it's really interesting. I spoke at the National Book Festival here in Washington um, just over the last few days. And my co-panelist was a man named uh, Brendan McConville, who wrote a book about a very early conspiracy theory at the time of the American Revolution, in which a group of people in the colony of North Carolina became convinced that some of the, the leaders, the sort of leading lights of the American Revolution were papist, they were pro Catholic, that their enlightenment values were antithetical to Protestant Anglican values that these people held. That sort of points to the fact that it's sort of in our DNA as a country to feel like we are surrounded by and infiltrated by potential enemies of the American project. You know, we define ourselves in a way as a young country, kind of insecure in many ways. We define ourselves in terms of who and what are the threats to us. And from that, a lot of pretty loony conspiracy theories <laughs> arise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and also some dangerous ones, as we've seen. And so I think, you know, it's both disturbing and reassuring to view the the current decade of conspiracy theorizing and rising mis- and disinformation sped by social media as another of these spasms in our history. They often come at a time of political and social upheaval. You know, the JFK assassination mm-hmm. theories, 9-11, they're a response to random cataclysmic events that people have a hard time explaining people can't live in that state of, you know, suspended chaos for very long. They have to come up with a 
uh, an ordering theory, a kind of explanation. Absolutely. I think that's why they were so prevalent around COVID, weren't they? Because absolutely, we were literally all just sitting around waiting for information. So disinformation filled the void. Yes. And when you layer politics, when you have individual actors like Alex Jones or like Donald Trump, who for reasons of personal gain, whether it's political or financial, layer or or exploit that tendency in Americans or in a certain subset of Americans, that's when you really have problems yeah. um, because it adds a lot of tinder to those embers that are always there. And yeah. I think what, what we've seen in the last several years in particular and around the Capitol insurrection on January 6, 2021, is, you know, people blowing on those embers and adding fuel to that conspiracy fire that that sort of dwells in some Americans. There's something in your book, a theme in your book that I'd like to honor here with my last Mm -hmm. question, because as a journalist, I'm one of the worst offenders. And that is that human beings need a positive ending to things. (laughs) Yes. And journalists are the worst. You're like, oh, this conversation's gone downhill. Ask her, what do you think about the future? Uplifting question at the end. Yeah. So you feel free to answer this in as negative or as positive a way as, as you want. What does all of this mean for the future? Is this only going to get worse or has the recent court case with Alex Jones, has that sort of snatched some sort of victory from the jaws of defeat that there might actually be a positive turn at the end of this? So I view this in cosmic terms. So there are days when I think, oh, you know, how did we get here and where are we going? And I get a little bit despairing of this. But one thing, I think we have to look to the Sandy Hook families themselves. By talking with me for this book, they are raising an alarm. They're saying that this experience that we had is a portent for what can happen when a society cannot agree on basic truths, decides to, you know, choose their own adventure when it comes to the history that's being made every day. We can't exist as a country on that. You know, that's not a solid foundation for democracy. But what I see is, you know, they spoke with me out of optimism and hope that by raising that alarm, this would be discussed. The fact that you and I are discussing this today is to me Another reason for optimism that people are alerted to this now. When this first began after Sandy Hook, it was in its infancy. People didn't speak about it, but nobody really knew what any of this meant. And I think this has burst into clearer context that this is a societal situation that needs to be addressed. It's also a phenomenon of social media and that the social media companies need to be held to greater account for spreading this kind of material and disinformation. But there are a lot of people working on this now, you know, psychologists, sociologists to try and counter this tendency in some Americans to embrace these theories unskeptically. There is work being done, bipartisan work being done on um, tightening controls over the flow of this material over social media. There are efforts being made to study the way that it travels through social media algorithms. So in that sense, the Sandy Hook families are achieving their goal. They're raising awareness that this is not just a threat to vulnerable people like them 
or to certain groups of individuals in our society, this is eroding the roots of our democracy. This is a problem that can run very deep if left unaddressed. And I think that that is a real victory of Lenny Posner's, of the families that are fighting this. Mm. They are determined to hold people like Alex Jones to account. And we are seeing like through the the January 6th committee investigation, we're seeing people begin to take a stronger and deeper look at the roots of this material, where it comes from, this conspiracism and those who would exploit it. For anyone who's interested in finding out more, obviously, I would suggest reading your book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, which is out now. What's the next thing on the calendar, apropos Alex Jones? Well, I'm about to head to Connecticut, actually, because Alex Jones has lost all of his defamation cases. So four (laughs) defamation cases filed by the Sandy Hook families against him. And so the next phase is a series of trials for damages, meaning the juries will decide how much he must pay the Sandy Hook families for defaming them. So the first one we saw was in... July and August in Austin, Texas, where InfoWars, Alex Jones's business is based. And the next one, this will be a big one. This is in a case brought by the families of eight victims in Connecticut, the state where the crime occurred. So I'll be going to Connecticut for that. And after that, there is one more remaining trial for damages brought by Lenny Posner and Veronique De La Rosa, who I said earlier are the parents of Noah Posner, the youngest Sandy Hook victim the real driver behind this effort to hold Alex Jones to account. And that will again be in Austin, Texas. So we're beginning to see the consequences pile up for Alex Jones, who has put his business into bankruptcy, is seeking to hide his assets from potential judgments. The first judgment was for $50 million in order that he pay Scarlett Lewis and Neil Heslin, the parents of Jesse Lewis, who died at Sandy Hook, $50 million in compensatory and punitive damages. They probably won't end up collecting that amount, but that is a symbolic judgment. This next judgment in the Connecticut case could potentially be a very significant one financially for him. So, you know, he's beginning to get his comeuppance and and that for the families is an enormous victory. Yeah. And I may be wrong in saying this, but as an outsider, if he can't win in Texas, can't win in Connecticut, can he? It feels like comeuppance is riding in on a horse it really does (laughs) yes I think that's well put and I think in Connecticut he's not going to get a friendlier reception um, than he did in in Texas his home state Elizabeth this has been absolutely fascinating do you think perhaps there's another book in this when all of this is done (laughs) I don't know you know I'm not sure I mean that's been suggested to me um, the trials themselves we'll have to see how things go Can I ask where you are on Twitter so people can follow you and keep up? Sure. I'm at at NYT for New York Times, Liz. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks for your interest in this. I really appreciate it. Standard Issue for All Women.